Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining us today as we continue our Tuesday series with one of our all-star guests, taking over the series, picking the topics for the month, and joining me on the episodes. My guest for October is Tom Barbieri, PwC's U.S. Chief Accountant. Oftentimes we go through our days as either accountants, preparers, users, really not thinking about the ecosystem and sort of the how they're all connected together, you know, how they function, and really how this, I'll call it a public-private partnership, really um, functions on, on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, it's going to be really important as this ecosystem continues to change over time, and we're going to see that, and there's been an evolution over time relative to these things, which we'll, we'll get into some of that. And so I really thought this would be a good discussion to keep us all grounded in uh, what we do every day to really help the capital markets and really look for ways to improve uh, the financial reporting ecosystem as a whole. As year-end financial reporting is just around the corner, we thought it was the perfect time to explore how the reporting world, what we would affectionately refer to as the financial reporting ecosystem, works, and the critical role it plays in the capital markets. In today's episode, Tom's joined by Kevin Vaughn, a national office partner, and Ying Compton, a managing director in the office of the vice chair. Tom's PwC's representative on the FASB's key advisory board, FASAC, and Kevin and Ying were both at the SEC when it was first discussing this ecosystem. They help us all better understand the financial reporting ecosystem, including the key players and how they fit into the process, and even how you, the listeners, can get engaged. With that, here's my conversation with Tom, Kevin, and Ying. Tom, Kevin, Ying, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to have you all here for a topic that perhaps we should have covered in our first podcast instead of episode, I don't know, 400 or whatever episode this one is. And that topic is the role of the financial reporting ecosystem in the capital markets, including the players, how they interact, and perhaps, well, and definitely most importantly, how preparers can engage in this broader system. So I'm sure some of you listening are now thinking, "Uh, I'm not sure I care about this, but I promise you, you do. And second of all, just even understanding what we mean is probably a question. So Tom, I know you picked this topic, so perhaps you could start things off and let us know why you picked it, and then we can get into it. Absolutely. So I guess the way I'd start is ever since the Securities Act of uh, 33 and 34, we've been trying to look for high quality financial reporting for for investors and users of the financial statements, and um, which is basically what these accounting podcasts have been all about, right? Um, that's sort of been the basis of it. And that's both in terms of producing financial statements in accordance with generally accepted accounting standards and making sure that you know they're audited by those trusted individuals that are designed to protect investors as well. And so oftentimes we go through our days as either accountants, preparers, users, really not thinking about the ecosystem and sort of the how they're all connected together, you know, how they function and really how this, I'll call it a public-private partnership, really um, functions on, on a day-to-day basis. And so you know, it's going to be really important as this ecosystem continues to change over time, and we're going to see that, and there's been an evolution over time relative to these things, which we'll, we'll get into some of that. And so I really thought this would be a good discussion to keep us all grounded 
in uh, what we do every day to really help the capital markets and really look for ways to improve uh, the financial reporting ecosystem as a whole. Well, and I'll actually add a reason I think it's important is one of the things we've been talking about here a lot on the podcast is sustainability reporting almost every week. And one of the challenges with sustainability reporting is that doesn't have the same type of ecosystem that we have for financial mm-hmm. reporting. And so I think for all of us involved, and we're about to get to who all those parties are, understanding what has made financial reporting so successful yep. in the capital markets, I think is going to be critical. So, you know, I think that's exactly right, Heather. It's it's going to be interesting decade, <laughs> right, as, <laughs> as that evolves in sustainability reporting, et cetera. But um, I think you're right. I think this framework that we've been able to leverage over time is going to be one that I think a lot of different groups are going to look towards uh, emulating. And it's going to have to happen a lot faster for all those other groups. So so with that, Kevin, let me bring you into the conversation. And maybe if you want to talk about who the players are and what we think about when we think about this high quality system. Sure, absolutely. I I think it's easy, easiest for me uh, to break it down almost when you think about the different stages of reporting. Uh, So you go from preparation to the audit to delivery uh, and then ultimately the use. Uh, And when you think about that preparation, audit and delivery stage, there's there's kind of a group of people that are involved. There's the preparers, uh, companies, uh, people at companies actually preparing the information, auditors, uh, and then you have standard setters. So talking accounting and auditing, of course, but also things like internal controls. Uh, and, and if you think about sustainability, as we think about some of the many standard setters there, and then finally, there's regulators, uh, such as the SEC, uh, or, or other regulators as well. And then all of that leads us down to the ultimate goal, which is the use of the information, high quality information. And and the key player there is the investors. And the investors are front and center. If you think about some of those organizations, the SEC, the FASB, the PCOB, all of them have investors at the center of their mission. Uh, and and that's what they're focused on in, in everything that they do. So really, that that's the point is that is that we're doing all of this for investors. So thanks for that overview, Kevin. And I know we're going to get into each of these, but before then, I think it's important to remind our listeners of the overall goal of working together within the system and how preparers can get engaged. So maybe with that uh, context, Tom, let's talk about the roles of the preparer and the auditor. Can you share just a bit about how they fit into this broader system? Well, look, you know, the preparers have the you know first line of defense relative to responsibility and taking ownership of their financial statements and their their disclosures. And then obviously the auditors relative to their audit opinion are going to be, you know, performing an audit on that to, to make sure that those are, you know, not materially misstated. Right. So the level and threshold and the diligence is slightly different. And obviously, as auditors will we'll report. As, a, as an audit firm up into the audit committee, which has the responsibility and oversight function over management and its preparation of financial statements. But certainly they'll um, look to the audit um, as part of that in, in fulfilling their responsibilities and understanding of um, you know, the quality of the financial statements being produced. You know, it's really important that companies have diligent processes around disclosure committees, you know, really good sound internal controls, you know, to the extent that they're making critical accounting judgments and estimates that they have appropriate disclosures, that they have the appropriate parties that are in place and actually reaching conclusions around that where there's a lot of judgment involved, you know, sharing those items with the audit committee, all of that becomes really important. 
um, to produce high quality financial statements and, and financial statements that are transparent to the users, right? Because a lot of times these judgments, you, you get into things like fair values mm-hmm. or accounting estimates, you know, there might be a wide range of selected inputs you might have, right? Uh, having the audit committee understand where in that spectrum you are relative to your thinking, I think is really important. As we talk about this financial reporting ecosystem, this is part of a, a broader ecosystem that exists just in the public markets overall, right? So think of things like proxy reporting mm-hmm. and, and proxy rules and, and or other areas, right? And this is just one piece of that. Oftentimes people don't view it that way. They kind of view it distinct, but it's just one piece of a broader puzzle. Well, yeah. And actually I thought you were going to chime in, Tom, with your financial services background to say you also have even the role of other um, financial institution regulators and others have some role here. So there's lots of different parties that yep. touch on this in some uh, way. Absolutely. But we'll focus on these these main ones here. And I think maybe the place to start is thinking about sort of the regulators and standard setters, because I think ultimately they're the ones that are driving what we're seeing from a financial reporting perspective. So Ying, bringing you into the conversation, I think our conversation will focus on the U.S. and the ecosystem we have built the U.S. in general is viewed to have among the highest quality standards. So what are the reasons for that, Yang? I think one element of, of course, is we have high quality standards, but that's not the only reason. A major part of it is the application of the accounting standards, because we all know that accounting standards definitely has to have discretion built into it so management can exercise their judgment to make accounting decisions that reflect the company's underlying economics. So there are factors that play into the application of the standards, including the demand for transparent financial reporting, including uh, the rigor of audit, including enforcement. So I'll just go briefly into each of those three points. So U.S. is different from many other countries in the world because Our companies primarily rely on public capital markets for their financing needs. So this creates the demand from investors for transparent public disclosures. So a lot of other countries, they rely on bank system for financing, and banks have private channels for the information. So that need for rigorous public disclosures drove our system. So for that reason, we have an independent regulator uh, in the creation of the PCOB for audits. And that has spread into the rest of the world. Uh, Now about over 50 countries have independent audit regulators. We also have rigorous enforcement system. U.S. GAAP is part of federal securities law, so not complying with U.S. GAAP is actually a violation of federal securities law. And U.S. has very rigorous public enforcement and private enforcement to to enforce our laws. Okay. So then, Kevin, can you talk about the role of the SEC? Yeah, absolutely. I thought it might be helpful to think about it going back to those stages and kind of how they plug in at the different stages because they have the unique perspective of of covering, you know, almost pretty much all those stages. Uh, So from the preparation perspective, they have rules that govern the form and content of financial statements. They set accounting rules. Uh, They actually are the designated accounting standard setter by Congress. Uh, But under under those those rules, they also have designated the FASB uh, as the private sector standard setter. And then you also have on the audit side, 
they have their own independence requirements and, and they oversee auditor requirements as well as overseeing the PCAOB. Uh, so the other standard setter that we'll talk about. Uh, and then from the delivery perspective, they own all the rules in terms of the form of filing, uh, the timing of filings, uh, the information to be clu- included in there, of course. And they also control the Edgar system, which is one of the most visited web pages out there. Tom, I know you have been working with the FASB in um, one of their advisory committees, but you want to give some background and also talk about your interactions a little bit. Sure. I I think as uh, Kevin mentioned before, you know, the FASB is recognized as sort of the setters of gap here in the U.S. It's a private sector independent organization that appoints the board members of the FASB. The FASB also is, is private and independent. They basically appoint seven board members, including the you know, chair position of the board. They vote on, obviously, new standards that come out. It's only required a majority vote, four to three. That changed years ago. It used to be five to two. It used to be a kind of a super majority. Now, it's more of a simple majority now. The chairperson uh, has the ability to sort of set and establish the agenda, allocate resources to how they're going to prioritize projects, and sort of lead that on behalf of the board. So that's a really important role. Obviously, their goal is to continue to have high-quality financial reporting, focus on emerging issues, focus on things that are relevant for users. For example, the FASB a couple years ago had an agenda consultation where they reached out trying to solicit topics that would be really of interest of, of users as well as preparers and trying to bridge the gap between you know, what's they are possible from preparers and, and what could be used from users uh, in an efficient way. So they'll continue to work on that. And they have a number of advisory groups, which they regularly tap into. Uh, the one that I'm a part of that you mentioned is FaceAct. That's their advisory council, which, again, is made up of users, preparers, as well as practitioners. But they have a whole host of groups, an investor advisor committee. They've got a small business committee, not-for-profit committee, and as well as they've got a uh, private company council, which will help advise them and give them uh, views around how some of the standards they're they're thinking about um, considering would impact private companies and looking for ways that maybe could accommodate private companies um, uh, and investors of private companies. And then lastly, they have the Emerging Issues Task Force, which is more of an interpretive body, which will, will look at interpretations. And obviously, those would get proposed subject to endorsement by, by the FASB. So that's sort of the background of how they function. So, Tom, one of the things that struck me that I knew but hadn't really focused on or thought about was the change from the 5-2 vote to the 4-3. And again, this is putting you a little on the spot, but in terms of making that change and if we think it's had an impact on reporting, is is there anything we can share Yeah, I, 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 I think it has. I think it's... Um yeah, this is my view. I right. think it's sped up some of the projects because it's now just a simple majority. And so you used to have a lot more negotiation to get things across the finish mm-hmm. line and now mm-hmm. not as much. And you also see, and this happens depending upon the board makeup, you'll you'll generally see groups that will align in certain areas, which is sort of interesting dynamic. But yeah, it's I think it has sped things up. It does get complex though, as new board members come on as well, because you might have existing board members that voted on proposals before they went final. And then when they come final, you can have someone new to the process that could flip their vote Mm -hmm. relative to where it was. So I, I think it has sped things up. And so I think it's been a helpful change. And Kevin, how about the interaction of the SEC and the FASB, the big picture, how are those two parties like work together? So the SEC has official oversight 
over the FASB by virtue of the fact that they they've designated them as the as the standard setter. So there's a lot of close collaboration. Uh, they are still the the FASB is independent, right? And and so there's not a view that the SEC should be stepping in on the decisional type of items, uh, they're more focused on process. Like what's the, are they following the due process that the FAF and the, and the FASB have set out for the standard setting? Uh, are they checking all the boxes, doing all the things? Are they considering feedback, uh, from the broad range from investors, preparers, et cetera? Are they, uh, working through that? So that's, that's a lot of the time, uh, when I was at the SEC really focused on, on that aspect of, of their work. And certainly, understanding their thought process and setting standards, because ultimately the SEC will be the ones enforcing it from a, a application by public companies through, you know, reviewing filings or, or the division of enforcement, as Ying was kind of alluding to earlier. So they want to make sure that they've understood that throughout the process so that they can effectively enforce the standards uh, going forward. And then to, this probably to both of you, but Tom, you mentioned the very tail end, the EITF. And I think that's something that's of interest to a lot of preparers because we used to see, you know, some years 30 or more EITFs now, you know, it's a different process. I think if you go way back to the early 2000s and, and that that area, the there 90s, were just a, yeah. a ton of issues that were sent to the EITF. And the EITF at that point in time was an interpretive body that was effectively coming up with new you know, rules and regulations that at a later date, it was decided that those should go through an endorsement project to the FASB, which I think looking back at it has slowed down the process to complete issues. And I think that's something that the current FASB board in particular, the chair of the FASB is looking at right now, how to maybe reinvigorate that process. I think if you look over the past couple of years, there might have been two issues maybe over the past two to three years that have been issued. Some of those issues are not the most emerging issues. And so, you know, I think there is an opportunity here to sort of go back to something at a, um, which would be a little bit more nimble and could really bring in, you know, thoughts around both emerging issues or areas where we see diversity in practice and maybe get it aligned to one view, which would help comparability for users along the way. So I think there is, you know, a process underway in doing that. I would expect changes probably within the next year. Yeah, because I think for a lot of, and I'll again use preparers, but I'm sure others, there would be interest in but sort of more viewed as a neutral body who can take on relatively more narrow but important current issues and and act quickly instead of, you know, yeah, practice it's, it's, coalescing yeah, in some it's, of the it's, other ways. It's, the speed is a big one. The yeah. other one is, I'll call it the filtering mechanism to make sure that the issues are the right issues mm-hmm. for that, that group to be looking at so that you just don't get, you know, tons of issues and rather than, you know, getting them targeted on those things that will really matter and really would move the needle from a high quality financial reporting perspective. Yeah, that's helpful. I think some of that evolution, maybe there's a few things. The SEC does have a process to also handle Mm -hmm. interpretive issues through the office of the chief accountant. Now you'll hear a lot more over the years, you know, whether it's staff speeches or staff accounting bulletins, and, and they use other mechanisms as well to get some of that out to the practice. All right. Very helpful. Ying, I wanted to ask you about the PCOB. And I again, if I'm a preparer listening, I think they often sort of arm's length. That's the regulator of the auditors. I don't care about the PCOB. I think all of 
us would say that is way too narrow a view because they are impacted by the PCOB, which we're seeing with some of the recent proposals. But can you kind of give some perspective on that? Yeah, so the PCOB was created in 2003 by the Sarbanes-Oxley Act to oversee public company audits and audits of SEC registered broker dealers. So SEC is very involved in that oversight role. SEC gives feedback to PCOB's rulemaking just during that process. SEC also approves PCOB's budget rules and appoints the the board members, which is a huge role, right? So. Even though PCOB is a regulator of audits, PCOB's work and standard setting do have a direct impact other parties in the ecosystem. When you think about the goal of SEC's standard setting, which is to increase audit quality, so investors are the main beneficiaries of audited financial statements. Yeah, maybe just to add to to what Ying's saying. I mean, I think. As a preparer community, you really want to understand what what rules are coming out, how that might affect the audit, how that might put a potential strain just on your resources and accommodating the auditors, right, to giving them the appropriate evidence they have. You're going to have audit committees that I think are going to be you know interested in how the underlying audit firms do relative to the performance of the audits and the sort of reviews that they get from the PCOB. So I think that's really another important element. You know, they have a real important role, and I think everyone, you know, needs to keep an eye on what their proposals are and how it could impact them. All right. Very helpful. So then let's go back to the extent things are static. That's relatively easier, right? Because they're all dealing with different changes in their own businesses. And just keeping up with that is difficult to make sure that you are producing high quality reporting. But then if you layer in individual company change with changes coming from the standard setters and regulators, that obviously exponentially complicates things. And so I think it's important to understand the process, what the thought that goes into it. There's a lot of other things. So Kevin, I'll, I'll give you the challenge of saying across, if we say FASB, PCOB, and SEC, what are some of the differences in terms of how they are developing new rules and standards? I guess maybe maybe going back a little bit, if you think about some of the differences, uh, we talk about like the open meetings. I would say there's varying perspectives on how open uh, some of those dialogues are. You know, if you think about the FASB, what you get there is is they'll talk about a project uh, and maybe make some decisions, uh, but not all. And, and there's papers that they publish that kind of works through some of that analysis. You don't necessarily get the same uh, from the SEC and the PCAOB all the time uh, in terms of how they're thinking through uh, and the progression. So, you know, you, we talked about sustainability earlier. Uh, I know we, <laughs> we always talk about the, the maybe eventually SEC climate rule. But part of the, the struggle that people are having with that is that we had a proposal the comment period ended and we have no idea mm-hmm. what's happening. Like we, there's no insight into what are the deliberations. Uh, whenever someone speaks about it, it's just, we're considering all of the feedback that we received. And so you don't have that same insight. I would say sometimes you get a little bit more of that with the FASB. It's, it's a challenge, right? It, how much sunshine do you want to have on the project? The more sunshine you have on it, most likely the longer it's going to take because every time you're even contemplating a decision, you'll have many parties that will weigh in, right? So I think there's a balance. You don't want to 
maybe show every single card. But that being said, I think you want to make sure you've got a, a, a good process in place that you've really consi- considered all the diverse opinions that would take place. And so, you know, certainly I think all these groups strive for that. Ying, turning to you, let's talk about balance. Although the PCOB and others, of course, are looking for high quality, they also need to balance that objective with the cost, which is ultimately borne by shareholders of the companies under audit. How do they consider that? Sure. So both the SEC and the PCOB have a formal economic analysis process. It's mainly just a framework. A lot of times it's not quantitative just because a lot of costs and benefits are very difficult to quantify. When you think about the benefits, so the the benefits of improved disclosures or reliability of the disclosures is typically increased liquidity or lower cost of capital. That is really difficult, if not impossible, to estimate, especially before a rule is implemented. So data is not even available to estimate that. On the cost side, there could be some work done to quantify the costs, especially the implementation cost, for example, on issuers, right, to implement uh, the disclosures. But all that said, even though economic analysis is not perfect, but it forces discipline on the regulators. Uh, So it, it forces regulators to justify why they have to make the rule, right? What are the reasons? What are they trying to achieve? Including why is the proposed course of action the best out of all the alternatives, including the alternative not to do anything, right? So I think ultimately it it does serve the useful purpose of preventing inefficient regulation. It's interesting. You you mentioned the economic analysis that both the PCOB and SEC does. You know, the FASB has their own analysis, a cost-benefit analysis, which they do, which is is really uh, qualitative. They They don't have economists on staff. But it gets really hard, I think, for them as they're implementing new standards to really get a handle on what the costs are, particularly through the preparer process. You know, oftentimes they try to do field testing, but it's it's hard to get a flavor for what the ultimate cost is on a field test. Because until, you know, a rule gets close to being finalized, it's hard for preparers to really have a good sense for what it's going to take to, to sort of comply with it. You know, it is an area that the current board is actually looking at, um, is sort of the quality of their cost-benefit analysis. Is there any changes that they should make? Is there more a more consistent framework they should apply in doing it? It, it was a, a subject as part of the um, FACE Act discussions at the last meeting. So the advisory council was sort of solicited their feedback on cost-benefit analysis. I think everyone recognized it's hard, but offered up a few ideas. So we'll see how that evolves, but it's certainly part of their process. All right. Very interesting. So then, Tom, we've kind of hit all these different parties and touched briefly on investors, but I know there's also others that rely on the financial statements and that play part in the ecosystem that actually wind up influencing it. So how do you think about that? Look, if you look at the financial statements that are produced now, we talk about the users, right? The the financial statements are are designed to be general purpose financial statements. And so that's supposed to apply to both existing and future, you know, investors, both equity investors, as well as debt investors, lenders, et cetera, right? It's it's not intended to actually calculate the fair value of the entity, right? Oftentimes we hear that. <laughs> um, that's not the purpose, but it is supposed to give you some information that directionally could help investors and users understand, you know, future cash flows, as well as the performance of the entity over time, right? So, 
We find that oftentimes others might utilize the financial statements for different purposes. So you might have um, regulators like banking regulators, um, for example, who might have a different purpose, right? Banking regulators will think about things like safety and soundness of an organization, right? That they can rely on financial statements. It might be a critical part of that, but there's other areas mm-hmm. that would come into play relative to that. Think about taxes, right? We, we now Especially have- these days. Yeah, these yeah. days. So we have taxes both here in the US based upon book income. We have pillar two, which is the future, which is gonna be based upon, y'all call it book-like mm-hmm. income, right? So I think we're gonna find there's gonna be more political influence over time around what does the results of, of the accounting that the FASB and others are proposing have on those types of areas, right? And we've seen that. Uh, periodically, we've seen influence or potential laws that might come out relative to accounting. Probably the most recently was on um, CECL, the mm-hmm. current expected credit losses, where there was was certainly uh, those politicians who wanted to slow down the FASB's path, adoption dates, the ramifications of that. Um, and I think that'll continue. Um, we also did see some uh, changes to GAP, quote unquote, or deferrals in GAP as a result of the CARES Act, which came through during during COVID, slowing down the effective dates, potentially uh, giving an option around slowing down the effective dates of both uh, CECL as well, uh, well as uh, troubled debt restructurings. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's an interesting time in accounting, and I think it's going to continue to evolve. Yeah, very interesting. And I do think, Tom, your point on I'm going to use the word political. I'm not sure that's exactly the right word, but Mm -hmm. there are just a lot more parties trying to influence what happens. And I also think that even creates additional stress between IFRS standards and FASB standards, because now it's not just a a potentially difference that maybe knowledgeable investors will know that there's different accounting under the two systems. But now if you make more money under one, are you going to have to pay more taxes? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's uh, these other things that are coming into play that are going to influence uh, financial reporting. And again, I'll go back to sort of what I said before, that I think a lot of Preparers and users think of this as very static because things seem to move so slow. But if you really take a step back and look at everything influencing uh, reporting right now, there's so many different things. So maybe with that thought and with some of the other comments we've made, if if you were talking to companies, because I know we get this question, what is your advice in terms of participating, maybe influencing, or or even if it's just sort of managing with this change and, and these different factors. And maybe I'll go in clockwise order for the way you guys are sitting to me, starting with Kevin. Yeah. So I one of the things that I think about a lot is is just the preparer engagement with investors. So we talked about like some of the the standard setters and how they have the mechanism to pull in both groups, but but that direct engagement uh, from a preparer to investor, I think, is really meaningful because it helps preparers to understand what are the needs of the investors, right? And and investors are the ultimate judge of whether or not our financial reporting system, whether it's producing high quality financial reporting. So it helps them understand what's useful to investors, and then it also helps them uh, in a way to communicate what they're capable of doing. Like we've seen this in, in some of the FASB standards where you've had almost like a little bit of a dialogue of, of, okay, well, we're, these are things we can do. These are things that are going to be really hard to do. And, and can we, can we get the useful information for investors with those things that, that companies can do uh, and, and focus on that. Uh, And so, so I think the more that 
that companies can help explain that situation to their investors and and have that dialogue back and forth. Uh, I think it could be really meaningful in helping push us forward. And just chiming in on that, I see that at face when I go to FaceAct, mm-hmm. there is still a huge disconnect between what the users want and what preparers believe they want. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And and the more you can have those types of conversations, I think it could help bridge the gap around getting back to the art of what's possible at a reasonable cost to help satisfy what the users are looking for. The better off I think the entire ecosystem will be. Very helpful perspective, Ying. We talked a lot today about the investor centeredness of uh, standard setters and regulators. So even though the FASB, the SEC, the PCOB are all, all working for investors' interests, they definitely want to hear from all the parties involved. This is because uh, there are a lot of considerations in the rulemaking process that needs. Uh, all those different perspectives. For example, costs. Right, preparers are a lot closer to understanding the costs of uh, any proposed rule that investors do. So it will be important to get some numbers in front of the regulators, and that kind of engagement can happen before a rule and also during the process. Yes. So then, Tom, coming to you last, and I feel like this is something I should preface this whole conversation, but for the benefit, I would have said it in the intro, but I want to reiterate it here. Tom is our firm's, what we call our chief accountant. So ultimately, you know, arbitrates accounting issues, and but really you interact with all of the parties in this ecosystem through your role. So I think you have a really unique perspective here on both what preparers can do to enhance the whole process, but also then how you think things are going to be influenced and changed as we continue to evolve. Listen, I, I, I think both Ying and, and Kevin hit on it. I think get engaged. I, I will tell you my interaction with all three of these groups is that they are willing to listen and they are are there to, to, to listen. They want to get the feedback. They want to understand what the ramifications are of any of their proposals are. And so get in front of them. Uh, the second comment I would have is I know it's hard, right? <laughs> like keeping up with all this is ridiculously hard. I struggle with it every day. And so I, I think, you know, it gets really hard to do so, but, you know, leverage PwC, you know, leverage your network to get the tidbits of information, participate in, you know, industry groups. I think that could be really in- invaluable at keeping you up to speed. Um, all of that becomes important. I think it actually makes it easier when you actually have to implement these things. You'll be ahead of it, ahead of the game. But I, but I know it's hard, um, but it is important. The other thing I would say is that things are going to continually evolve. It's going to get interesting. Uh, the one area I think about all the time is technology, right? Think about AI. Mm-hmm. Um, AI is going to be used by preparers to, to figure out their financials, to help check that the numbers are right as they're preparing them. AI is going to be used by auditors to go evaluate mm-hmm. right l- l- numbers. AI is going to be used by investors to look for trends, comparability. You know these types of of areas. It's going to be really important that we all play a part, provide feedback to each of these groups, help them get in front of what those issues would be, so we have something that's really effective. Um, but yeah, like get engaged. 
All right. Well, that's a great note to end on because I think it's a reframe we give often yes. on the podcast. Anytime we talk about a new proposal, that's that's what we say. But it's not just new proposals. And I think that's the point you're making. So all three of you, Kevin, Ying, Tom, we appreciate all your knowledge and perspective. And thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. And that's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.